Before the celebration of the Lord's Supper, I may serve you in the administering of the gospel, particularly from the verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 48. So I want to read those three verses with you as a way of reminder, and you are most welcome to keep your Bible open as we work our way through them in a moment. The Lord says through Isaiah 48 verse 9, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for whose sake... That's the question before us this afternoon, which arises from this text of Scripture. As we come to worship this afternoon, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we ask ourselves, why would the Lord do this for us? Why does the Lord love us? The Lord has saved us. We confess if we're believing Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ, we say He has saved us. And the Lord says, good, I'm glad you believe that, but I want you to be confirmed, assured, and strengthened in that. And I'm going to give you the Lord's Supper for that reason. So in addition to the salvation, He gives us the sacrament and strengthens the salvation through it. And our faith in that salvation. So we have this righteous and holy God who's made a way to deal with sin and He exudes love for His people. But why does He do this? Why has He bothered? What's the ground for His grace? For whose sake did He act? That's the question. And Well, we have the answer which you think in your reformed heart you say, well, salvation, everything is for God's glory. Okay, good. That's what we want to see this afternoon. But we need to deal with a difficulty, as it were. For when you just think about it and you say, we were lost, God saves us. If He didn't save us, we would be destroyed, as we also confessed this morning with Lord's Day 4. So if He saves us and we get saved when we would have been destroyed, it's for our sakes. For our sake. And that's the question. The words for the sake of mean out of consideration for or to the advantage of a person or a thing. Well, salvation, surely that's for your advantage. Salvation is for your good. And it's out of consideration for you, isn't it? That Jesus died on the cross. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. I marked it off in the Bible here. 1 Peter 1, verse 20 says that Christ indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Other translations will say, for your sake. And if you want to see a for your sake statement made more 
strongly, you go to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor that you through His poverty might become rich. So He did it for your sake. Salvation is for you. It's for your sake. So we ask, why did God bother, bother with us? Why has He loved us? He has loved us and bothered with us because of us, isn't it? But the text of Isaiah 48 says, it's for my own sake that I will do it in verse 11. The Lord, in fact, repeats it three times. Verse 9, for my name's sake I'll defer my anger. And in a way, he says it a second time in verse 9, for my praise. And then you come to verse 11, for my own sake, my own sake, I will do it. And he even ends by saying, I'll not give my glory to another. So that's like saying it five times. And through Ezekiel, the Lord even once said it in such a way that he denied that it's for our sakes. He said in Ezekiel 36, verse 32, I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So the question is, which one is true? Does God save us for our sakes? Or for his sake. And in order to answer that, let's work our way through Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 8. What happens in this chapter is that Isaiah is prophesying for a people who will go into exile and will have no more sign of God's favor. But at a certain point, they're going to come out of exile again. And then the question is, who takes them out of exile? There's even going to be a Persian king named Cyrus who's going to say, go back to your own country. How is that the Lord's doing? I mean, when he took his people out of Egypt, he sent ten plagues, he drowned Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, and he had the cloud between Pharaoh and God and his own people, and it was really in a sense, obvious, this is the Lord God Almighty who is going to meet with us on Mount Sinai, who saved us from the hand of the Egyptians. But when they come out of exile in Babylon, after 70 years of exile, which is going to happen a little after Isaiah prophesies this, you don't have all those great things, and the people might then say, well, while we were in exile, we followed the gods of the Babylonians, Marduk, and so on, and look what it got us. Look what it got us. We got to go back home. Well, what the Lord does in Isaiah 48 is try to take away the possibility of them saying such a thing. And he does it, first of all, by telling them that whenever something great happened in the past, he first prophesied it, then it happened, so that they couldn't say that their idols did it for them. So, Isaiah 48 starts with his people called by his name who even take oaths by his name. Verse 1, they swear by the name of Yahweh and they make mention of the God of Israel but look what it says at the end of the verse. Not in truth or in righteousness. So that's a people who say, you know, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. If you say it two times or three times you get more holy and, and then you really mean it and people have to pay attention to your oath. Or you use the name of the Lord, but not in truth or righteousness. So they're not really honoring God. 
They call themselves after the holy city. They lean on the God of Israel, but only for their own advantage. And so because that was their pattern, when God rescued them from some enemies, or when he would later rescue them from Babylon, he didn't want them to say, ah, now we're really being good people. See, God is rescuing us because we're good people. He says, no, actually you're the people who lean on me, use my name, but not in truth and not in righteousness. So if I'm going to rescue you, it's in spite of you. It's not because of your righteousness. It's rather for some other reason that we're going to understand in a moment. But he wants them then to say, or to recognize that if he does rescue them, it's simply because he made a commitment to do so. So verse 3 says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. So he made sure his people heard the prophecy. And suddenly I did them and they came to pass. So he announces and he acts according to his word. Why does he do it that way? Because verse 4, I knew you were obstinate. Your neck was an iron sinew, your brow bronze. So just stubborn people like you can see the marks in somebody's neck if they're really getting angry or their veins pop out on their temples. And that's what his people are like. So to rescue them, he had to do it all on his own initiative. Even from the beginning, verse 5, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. That's why the Lord prophesies ahead of time. In verse 14, which we didn't read, he says, All of you, assemble yourselves and hear. And the Lord may well be speaking then to the idols, as it were. Who among them, okay, he's speaking to his people about the idols, who among them has declared these things? Well, verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. It's the Lord, and he even is going to name Cyrus the king before Cyrus ever exists just to prove that this God really is the one in control of all things so now the Lord has said that was my pattern in the past when I rescued my people they were still a stubborn people but I rescued them anyway and now in Isaiah 48 he says in verse 6 I'm going to repeat the pattern I'm going to do the same thing again so my people are all disobedient they don't listen they're going to go into exile in Babylon but I announce, even before they go into exile, that it will take 70 years. And you know later Daniel is in exile and he prays to God because he has read the prophecy, he believes it, and he confesses sin to God and asks God to deliver his people after the 70 years. And the Lord does so. So verse 6, Isaiah is saying, before they ever go into exile, I'm telling you new things. God is going to repeat the pattern of the past. I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. So the Lord is going to act to fulfill his proclamation. Now, when liberal Bible scholars have read these sorts of prophecies, they've said, well, what we actually have here is an Isaiah who lived a lot later, and then he looked back at these events and he said, oh, we can sort of write our prophecy in such a way that it sounds like the prophecy is before the events, but actually it's a prophecy after the fact. And then it even got a fancy Latin name uh, that the scholars could use. But you see how much hangs on this? The Lord is saying the whole pattern of salvation, not just at this moment, what I'm going to do 
for my people that Isaiah is saying is coming in the future, but also the way I acted in the past was just like that. I say it, then I do it. And it's not after the fact. So it's central to his glory to do it this way. And so he announces new things in the verses 7 and 8. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day you have not heard of them. Lest you should say, of course I knew them. See, they can't say that. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. So they hadn't even thought of them before. They didn't know them. Does this perhaps make your mind wander over to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love Him. That's what's coming here is an announcement of God's secret wisdom, which is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8 and 9. He announced the secret wisdom of God that no mind had thought of or heart conceived. That's what Isaiah is saying here. You never thought of it. And so just like the Apostle Paul, he could say we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God. It's a beautiful thing. An announcement of good news of the gospel. And so for the people of Judah who would be exiled from their land and would languish in Babylon, God is saying, I will persevere. Grace will persevere. God will bring a remnant back from the exile. And God would bring another kingdom to overcome the Babylonian kingdom, send Judah back. He would commission a rebuilding of the temple, a renewal of sacrifice, a renewal of the gospel message of forgiveness through sacrifice. This is what Isaiah is announcing. Now back to our question. For whose sake? For whose sake is God acting? Does he act for our sakes or for his own sake? Did God come up with the gospel plan of sending Jesus as the final sacrifice for our sakes or for his own sake? Look at Isaiah 48, verse 9 through 11 again, which we're looking at. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. The Lord says, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. I will hold it back. And the second phrase of verse 9, for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I may not cut you off. And the idea here is that God holds himself back. The word is actually uh, what you do to a dog to keep it from biting someone. You put a muzzle on the dog and God says, I'll muzzle my anger so it can't break out and I won't bite you, as it were. But again, you ask, why would God muzzle himself? Why would he restrain his anger? He says why. He says, for my name's sake and for my praise. 
Now, do you understand how that works in Isaiah 48? What does the Lord mean, for my sake, for my praise? Instead of saying, for your sakes, he says, for my sake. He's saying that because the only possible ground left, only possible reason why he would extend grace to these people and save these people is in his own heart. The foundation, the reason for saving is in God's heart. It's not in those people. Because what does he say is their pattern? He's afraid that if he doesn't announce it ahead of time, they'll give the glory to their idols. Or they'll take the pride for themselves. And there's no ground or reason left for him to save them except his own praise and his own glory. And so you could say God has to act out of self-interest. God has to act for the love of himself. They have become so stubborn and so wicked, there's nothing in them as such to love. There's nothing in them that evokes the love from him that just says, wow, those people are so wonderful. There's nothing like that. Rather, those people are misusing my name. They're leaning on me for their own benefit. They don't really love me. And God then finds in his own heart and desire the will to save them. And so the Lord continues this pattern of fulfilling his own words and prophecies by his own power independently. And if you want to think, you want to explain that to somebody, what that's like, you just explain the ten plagues and God taking his people out of Egypt. What did they contribute to being taken out of Egypt? When Moses and Aaron said, oh, God is going to rescue you, and the first time it didn't work out right, they said, why are you making our lives worse? Go away. Stop talking about Yahweh rescuing us. They didn't contribute at all. Ezekiel, in his prophecies, is actually among the exiles in Babylon, so he's later than Isaiah, and he says exactly the same things as Isaiah in Ezekiel 36. He says in verse 22 and 23 of Ezekiel 36, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So you see, it's not like God's people are going around advertising their God as the great God and giving evidence of their faith by their good works. It's all the opposite of that. They go around and they tarnish the name of God and try to use him for their own advantage, just like all the nations relate to their idols. Now, how will the Lord um, take care that his name is not profaned? Ezekiel 36, verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Okay, so that's great. That's just like what he did out of Egypt. But then, verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and your idols. So now they're going to be forgiven. But it's not just that they'll be forgiven. They're going to become a new people. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of 
flesh that beats and pulses for the glory of God. Well, the Lord says he will do all this, and he still has to repeat after he says all the things he's going to do for them. He still has to say in Ezekiel 36, verse 32, Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Well, you see how that parallels our text so well. For my own sake, I defer my anger. For my praise, I restrain it from you. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? So what's God doing? Brothers and sisters, there's a principle here of what God is doing all through the ages, what God is doing with you and with me by graciously putting, working in our hearts faith, causing us to love the Lord God, to love our neighbor. What is God doing? He's making you and me living letters of Christ so that his name may be recognized throughout all the earth. He doesn't do it so that you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy and so on and so forth. The Lord may grant you those blessings, but ultimately, you are to be a walking image of Jesus Christ, living letters of the Lord, so that more people will join in and give glory to the true God. And if God didn't do that for you and for me, if He didn't work in our hearts true faith, no one would worship Him, because in Adam we all turned away. Now you understand what He means when He says, for my name's sake, so that my name will not be profaned among the nations? You see, grace just doesn't naturally arise as if people get born and just naturally worship God. Grace is the breaking in of God into a world of sin to break down the strongholds of Satan and build up the kingdom of Christ so that God will be rightly honored. And why should God be rightly honored? Well, because God is the greatest. There just isn't anyone higher, better, greater, more mighty, wise, powerful, or loving than God. And if people don't acknowledge that, then all the rest of life is just a mess. The only way to get the rest of life ordered properly is if you have the right one on the top. And that's God. And so for the sake of His name, that's what He does. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anybody who recognize Him. Verse 10, the Lord says, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the, wor- the furnace of affliction. Why does the Lord send affliction to His people? so that you don't go through life thinking it's just easy. I grew up knowing the Lord and I just keep on serving the Lord and you know, no real temptations in my life. That's what other people have. And the Lord wants to ensure that the demons that are behind the idols do not finally get His people. And so He puts us through afflictions and troubles to form and to shape and to mold us and purify us until we acknowledge Him. And that's all part of this process of giving his people a new heart. There's a beginning of that new heart, but the new heart has to keep on being shaped and molded and bad stuff cut off and the growth of new life in you has to take place. And so God delays his wrath to give time for the renewal of our hearts. As he says in 2 Peter 3, that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's written for the church that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting you to perish. And he does that partly through that furnace of affliction. So now we understand that repeated phrase in verse 11, for my own sake, 
For my own sake I will do it, for how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another. And so God's glory here is the praise that is due to him for having a people of his own, for rescuing a people who had themselves pledged their allegiance to Satan and Adam and Eve. God breaks that off and he should be glorified for doing that. And God will not let someone else claim what is his right, his prerogative, his power, his work, his joy, and his delight to save a people. He will not give that glory to someone else. Well, isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? It says in Romans 5 or 6, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't after we showed that we're strong, while we were still powerless, Romans 5 or 6. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 or 8. Then you go to 5 verse 10. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. So we're powerless sinners and enemies, but Christ died for us, for the ungodly, for us, and reconciled us to God. Well, for whose sake does God act to save us? His or ours? Both. First for his sake, then for ours. So God acts, acts first for his sake and his glory, and then for ours, for our advantage and our salvation. And the two fit together perfectly. So I could, I could say, like, School's not in, but let's imagine it's school and um, one of you young guys has got a, a car out in the field and you take it to school because you're going to get this thing running. Why? Why do you take it to shop class to get it fixed up? Well, I could answer, well, you take it there because you want to learn the tricks of the trade. Okay. But if someone asked, if one of your friends asked you why you were doing it, you would say, hey, I want that car on the road. That thing's going to go. So you've got two reasons. Or say you're going to start your own business. Why are you going to start your own business? Well, I need to make money. All right, that's true. But it's not just that I need to make money because I'm not pursuing the thing that I might make the most money at. It's also that I want to pursue a passion. I really like what I'm going to do. Okay. But is that all? No, I'm a Christian. I want to serve my neighbor with my gifts and talents. Good. But is that all? No, there's even more. I think that God wants me to do this ultimately for His glory. And so we had four reasons why we might start our own business. Well, so also God. Why does God act like this? Well, you can say He does this to save us. So we won't be lost forever. Why does He save us? Well, He saves us so that we will love other people. Wonderful. But why should we love other people? Well, because we're remade in the image of Christ and, well, that glorifies God because He wants us to do that. And we're ultimately here just to acknowledge that He's on the top and there's no way we're going to get the rest of life ordered rightly unless He really is on the top and everything is for His glory because He made us, He remakes us, He has 
a future for us. To God be all the glory. So what is done for our sakes is ultimately for His. Why? So that God will finally be acknowledged as the God that He is who is above all, who is worthy of all praise, who has all glory and all perfection in himself. And if God didn't see to that, he wouldn't be God. He makes sure that his creation ultimately will be remade in such a way that it's all rightly ordered, sin is gone, and God is acknowledged fully. It's a wonderful thing. And we say in the Belgian Confession, Article 27, that Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. So praise God that Christ is a king forever. And so God will always keep a people faithful to himself, a people who do honor him, even if he has to do the most radical and unbelievable things to save them, which he has done. And so, brothers and sisters, understanding this gives you a window into certain other passages of scripture and I'll just mention two of them Psalm 79 verse 9 here are God's people praying and every time we we sing this or we we read this we're praying to God and it goes like this help us O God of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake you see when you ask God for something You can ask for all kinds of personal reasons and you think this will be good in my life and good in somebody else's life. But if you can ultimately say, Lord, I pray this for your glory and if you can understand how that works to the glory of God, then you've you've come to the deepest understanding of why God should act and you have pulled on the heartstrings of God in a way that you couldn't pull on the heartstrings of God with any other words and to say, Lord, ultimately for your glory act. And so Daniel prayed this way too in Daniel chapter 9 verses 18 and 19. He said, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your ear and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. Remember this is at the end of those 70 years we were talking about. That's exactly when he makes his prayer. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds But because of your great mercies, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. So as we come to the Lord's Supper this afternoon, we're acknowledging, brothers and sisters, that God has done the most unbelievable things and most radical things to save us. In the secret wisdom of God, he announced the gospel beforehand through multiple prophets, and then he acted, sending his son, born at Bethlehem, lived his life on earth, suffering servant, died on the cross for all our sins. No mind heard of that or conceived it until God announced it, and then suddenly he acted in Jesus Christ. So, you see the blazing, in, in the blazing center of the cross of Jesus Christ, you see the perfect wisdom of God, the glory of God on display for the world. And you come to the Lord's Supper to say, Amen, Lord. That is where my salvation was achieved. I trust in the Lord Jesus for the complete forgiveness of all my sins. And Lord, for your own sake, 
Assure me of that again and renew in me the sense of forgiveness. Because I now understand, Lord, that You are acting for Your own glory in sending Jesus Christ. And I am here as a believer, not just because of me, but first because of You. And I'm here to give You the glory and live my life for You. What a wonderful thing to understand that as we come to the Lord's table and praise God that in seeking His own glory, He did it through the way of seeking your salvation and mine, including us in this wonderful plan of a new creation when He'll drink the wine new with us. Let us therefore give Him the glory for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. Amen.